By the way, our sermons are going up on the podcast feed, but the Sunday school lessons aren't. I'm going to see if we can change that. We'll, we'll find out. But for right now, at least, the sermons are going up on the podcast feed. And maybe eventually we'll get the, the Sunday school lessons on there as well. Um, but the book of Job, very, very deep, very um, in- incredibly dense. It was one of the first books of the Bible that I read all the way through. And uh, I'm going to show you something funny and a little bit related to that. Um, uh, but this is a book that's so deep that there is a man named Joseph Carroll who preached on the book of Job from 1651 to 1677. <laughs> 26 years this man subjected his congregation to sermons on the book of Job. <laughs> I don't know. I, anyone stuck it out, I'm really proud of them, you know? Because like 20... The, the, yeah, it was Lectio Continua. How did the I don't, I don't know, but I do know that if you can, you can even now get the volumes by Joseph Carroll. There are 14 volumes on the shelf of just his sermons on the book of Job. And not all of them are to be read with much profit. You know, there are some, some things that, you know, maybe you could have trimmed that up a little bit. And that's a little pastoral restraint goes a long way sometimes. <laughs> I hope it was low, but who knows? <clears throat> but it does show, though, that the book of Job is sort of like this deep pool that you can dive into and you can keep going deeper and deeper and deeper and you can get to some incredible depths. I do think that what Carol did with that at least is worth commenting on. Um, this book wrestles with... I'm just going to write Job up here. Uh, this is a book that wrestles with very difficult questions, perennial human questions, the sort of things that really stick with us for the long term. Um, pain, where does it come from? Um, suffering, right? Why, why do I suffer? What's the cause of my suffering? Um, why do I suffer? Do I suffer because of my sin? Did I do something wrong? Is that why I'm going through what I'm going through right now? Um, is there peace for those who do suffer? Um, Can I trust God when my world is falling apart? These are all questions Job is dealing with and he's he's completely in the middle of, you know. Why don't I feel like God hears me? That's something Job's dealing with. And so at once, this is a very practical book. This is a very practical book. Um, Somebody once told me, he said, if you preach to people suffering, you will never lack for an audience. Mm -hmm. And Job is a book that preaches to people suffering a great deal. And so at the same time, this is also a book that it's hard to just jump in. Now, it's easy to jump in at first. You read the first two chapters, you go, all right, this is a very straightforward book. And then once you get past the first chapter or two, you, it becomes a very challenging book to read because you get these long conversations where you're wondering whether you can agree with what the people are saying. Like, that's part of what makes Job so challenging. Uh, Eliphaz gives a speech and you go, is that good or bad? The whole time you're reading Bildad and you're saying, okay, Bildad, it sounds like he's saying true things. Do I read this devotionally or do I read it with skepticism? Do I listen to your speech with like a measure of, I don't know. I'm so glad to hear that. Okay. I, I thought it was me. Oh, you, no, no, that's what makes Job hard. So it's, it is you. And me (laughs) and everybody else. Um, Because so that's what you do. You read Job and you go, I don't know who's right here. 
So maybe if maybe thinking a little bit about Job, how it's laid out, what's going on here might make reading the book a little bit less of a challenge and a little bit more of a of pleasure. We'll see. Um, when you're talking about authorship, we have no idea what the authorship of the book of Job is. Um, this is likely a book that was passed on by oral tradition, eventually committed to writing. Uh, it's a poetry genre, uh, but it means that this is likely not word-for-word dialogue. This is probably not the exact way that Job spoke and that these men spoke, but instead the content of their message and the content of their conversation is written in poetic form because people don't talk in poetic form, not even in Hebrew poetry. Um, and so this is a poetic uh, version of real events and real conversations and, and real moments in this man's life. Um, as far as date, we have no idea on the date of Job either. Actually, uh, that's not true. We have ideas on the date of Job. We just don't know if they're right. Joseph Carroll, who spent a long time with it, thought it was written in the time of Moses. Yeah, Elizabeth. Job, no doubt, he was a historic figure. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, it says he lived in the land of Uz. It gives the name of a place. It doesn't just say there was a man somewhere in a land of make-believe, but it actually gives him a historical place. And there are historical things that he does in a particular time that would have made sense in one period and not another. So he seems to have a historical setting. He seems to be a real person in a real place. Um, we'll talk about the place in just a minute. Um, but Joseph Carroll says it was written during the time of Moses. E.J. Young says it was written during the time of Solomon. Um, ultimately, it's hard to know. We, we don't have these indicators in the book that tell us when it was actually written. Uh, but it is almost certainly a, a very ancient book. Certainly of the events of Job take place possibly, even, well, we'll talk about this in a second. Actually, let's just talk about when the events take place. Um, they seem to have taken place during the patriarchal period. They seem to take place during or after the time of Abraham. Um, so maybe when the events of Genesis 12 to 50 are taking place, Job is also taking place, some in the land of Uz. Um, a few things that you notice here. He offers sacrifices. So that means this is before Moses. Um, he lives another 140 years after being restored. And so that means he probably lived closer to the time of the flood when people had extended lives still. You remember there's that in-between period where people aren't, <clears throat> they're not living 900 years, but they're also not living only 100 years yet. So Job uh, still lives long enough that it makes sense that his, his lifetime is probably closer to Noah. Um, Long, Longman and Dillard think Job takes place even before the Abrahamic covenant is made. So they think that it's very far back even before Abraham. But again, hard to know. It's, it's hard to know for sure. Uh, we know that he was not an Israelite. This is a man who lived in the land of, what a catchy name, by the way, Uz. He lives in Uz. We do not know the location of Uz. Uh, we do know that Lamentation and Jeremiah both, both make reference to Uz, which means that it's by the... By the time of the exile, it's a, it's a historical place that they know of. Nowadays, we don't know where it was, but they knew of it at that time. So it was a, a real historical place. Um, he's not an Israelite. This is guy, a guy that's obviously not living. Uh, well, there are no Israelites yet, especially if he's in the time of Abraham or if he's before the time of Abraham. Um, we do know this, though, that he's a God-fearer. This is somebody who's not in covenant with God necessarily, uh, the way Abraham is. But he also knows who God is, and he believes in God, and he fears God, and he makes sacrifices for his children. And he seems to care whether or not his children are walking with the Lord. Um, 
And what that means actually is, this is, this is really interesting. It means that the book of Job is a book for everybody, regardless of your nationality, regardless of your ethnicity. This is a, a book that just crosses all the boundaries because ultimately this guy's just a human being living in a place and he knows God. And that, that sort of helps us at least know when this book is written and who this book is written for. It's written for us and it's written for everybody else. Um, when you're talking about the structure of the book, I'm going to just give you, um, I don't, I'm not going to give you an outline that you would memorize or anything like that, but just think of it like this. The first two chapters, think of them as prologue, setting the stage for the real substance of Job, which is mostly a, what's the, what, if, you've, if a dialogue is two people talking, what is four people talking? Uh, whatever that is. <laughs> It's a mess. Quadrologue, yeah. all right. Does not roll off the tongue. Does not roll off the tongue. Well, and then you also have a fifth party that comes in, and then you also have God that comes in at the end. So it gets even crazier than that. So um, this book is in, so the prologue is, is chapter one and two. Then you have chapter three where Job laments his situation. He says, I wish I was dead. I wish I'd never been born. You know, this is a guy who's lost his family. This is a guy who's lost his health. This is a guy, he's in the pit of misery. And he lays it out and says, it would be better that I had never been born. And then this is where the real meat of the book that I think we mostly think of when we think of Job comes into play because chapters four to 27 are the cycle of speeches between Eliphaz and then Job talking. So Eliphaz is his friend. These guys who came along, they should have sat down with him and just mourned with him. Instead, they decide they're going to give him a little bit of a speech, you know. And so Eliphaz is talking to Job, and then Job talks back to him and says, you don't know me, bro. And then, and then Bildad comes along and he says, Job, I've got this whole situation figured out. We'll talk about their, each of their approaches in a, in a minute. Um, and then Job responds and says, you, you still don't understand. And then you have Zophar who does the same thing. And then that cycle happens two more times. So they're all just talking to each other. In a sense, they're talking past each other. And these guys are kind of reading Job's mind all the way, thinking they know what's really going on. Chapter 28 is this wisdom poem. And then chapters 29, 30, and 31 is Job giving his last speech. So Job... Job lays out his, his case. And then this fellow, Elihu, shows up. And Elihu is sort of this guy sitting on the side. He's younger. We'll talk about Elihu in a minute. He speaks. And then after that, God speaks. God comes in and really just shuts the whole conversation down. Um, so I was going to say, I, I had something I was going to share with you. Uh, I was so struck by God's dialogue, chapter 38, 39, 40, 41, 42. Six chapters, God just lays, lays the law down on all these guys who think they understand him, understand his ways, understand why he does what he does. When I was a brand new believer, so this is my, this is my first Bible when I was a, a young believer. I don't use it anymore because it's had a hard life. Uh, it has lived a tormented existence. Well-loved. I signed this in 1999, and I wrote my confession of faith in the back of this Bible. So this is my first Bible. And it's interesting seeing the stuff that I really cared about early on. And it was clear that I was really impressed with Job's, with God's speech to Job and Eliphaz and Bildad and so forth. So if you just look at this, you can kind of see my faded yellow. This is what happens after 20 years to your highlighting. Um, but just look what I did. 
ha, <laughs> and ah. So I really liked God's speech to Job uh, at the end of the book of Job. But the funny thing is about highlighting is once you highlight everything, then you don't need to highlight. You kind of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh, this is God. So I, I know I can ignore the stuff before. Maybe that's what I was thinking. Uh, but I was very impressed with the uh, God speaking there. And then, of course, you have this epilogue at the very end where very much things are put back um, in a sense, they're restored to what they were before by God. But we'll talk about that as well. So let's, let's talk about the narrative of Job. The chapter 1 and 2 is this prologue. It introduces Job. It uses some terms to, uh, that, that it applies to him. It calls him blameless. It calls him a God-fearer. I think those terms are really important for us to keep in mind as we're going through the narrative. Because his friends don't think he's blameless. And the book establishes at the very beginning... That he is. Um, this is a God fearer, by the way, was a term for those outside of Israel who follow God. So it's probably written at a time where Israel's established, but of course the events take place before that. It also introduces us to Job's suffering. So what happens uh, in chapter two of Job? Satan attacks Job's livelihood, it, he attacks Job's family, and he attacks Job's health. When you think of Job, you, you think of a man who's suffering physically, uh, emotionally, and relationally, right? You see his relational suffering because what happens? I hope that uh, uh, it's not wrong for me to say this, but Job has a terrible wife. Yes. Um, she doesn't, she is no help. She's no help to this guy. So you're saying it's- I did not say that. I did not say that. (laughs) No, no. She's a terrible wife. She tells him she sees him suffering and she says, just curse God and die. Like, I'm just like thinking in terms of like human advice, just on the scale of things that you want to say to somebody who's really hurting. Maybe the worst advice I've ever heard a human being give to another person who's just in pain. And, and she, says, she says, curse God and, and die. And this is a man who's, who's a godly person. He, he doesn't have it in him to do that. <clears throat> it's, it's not there. He's, he's not going to do it. He's not willing to do it. Yeah, Frank. Is it not fair to say that she equally suffering is her children who have been taken, her livelihood, yeah. her possessions, so her yeah. way of responding to pain and suffering yeah. I mean, we should not be unmerciful when we're thinking about even the people who make really bad decisions in Scripture. Now, Job's wife is definitely such a person, but she deserves our understanding as well, I think. Um, yeah. She still told him to do a very terrible thing, though. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, still bad advice. Um, but yeah, it's really under, we need to be understanding towards, towards the, the poor lady. Um, she doesn't see a way out of it, right? That's, that's really what she's saying. This is a hopeless person. Um, she doesn't see how is he ever supposed to, how are we ever supposed to recover from this? We can never get our children back. We have nothing to lose at this point. No one can hurt us now, really. And so she says, let's just end all of this. She doesn't see anything else to live for. Um, and so chapter one tells us this thing that Job spends the whole book wanting. What does he want throughout the whole book? He wants to know why. Why did this happen? 
Why were my, was everything taken from me? Why were my children taken from me? Why am I physically suffering? How is it that in my suffering, it's not just raining, but it's pouring? How is it that this, that this all happened? And Job suffers. We find this out in chapter one. Job suffers because God permits him to suffer. We find this out. Um, he gives permission to Satan in Job 1, 12. And all the while, Satan is the one doing these things, and yet he operates on the leash of God. So God is always, he's, he's got to come to God for permission to do something like give this guy a sore on his body. Just to give him a sore on his body. He has to go to God and say, I want to give him sores on his body. And, and, and he says, well, what if, can I, can I put thousands on his body? And God says, yes. Um, you know, something as simple as a canker sore or something as simple as hair loss is not something God is unfamiliar with in your life. Uh, I'm feeling it too, actually. My wife cut, cuts my hair and she keeps telling me it's getting thinner. It's getting thinner. So she's like desperate to save it. <laughs> what will you be if this is gone? Um, she didn't say that. She's shaking her head. Stop this. She's like, stop that right now. Um, but here's what happens. God tells Satan this far and no farther. He tells him how far he can go. And there is no way for him to cross that line. He always has to operate according to God. And so <clears throat> Job's lament um, is, is chapter three. Job curses the day that he's born. He wishes he'd been stillborn. Um, one of the interesting things Job doesn't do is he doesn't argue that this is unfair. Um, you don't hear him say, this is unfair. This shouldn't be happening to me. He's simply lamenting his suffering. He's just simply saying, I wish I'd never been born. I wish I'd never died. He doesn't accuse God of doing something wrong. He doesn't accuse God of injustice. He doesn't say God should not have done this. God was wrong. Um, but he does want answers. Um, Chapter four, you have this cycle of speeches start. This cha- cycle of speeches that I mentioned before. Um, each man takes turns. Now, again, if you're offering relational advice to somebody who has just been physically struck with about as much agony as a person can go through, who's lost his whole family, who's lost his whole livelihood, all of his flocks, uh, you know, maybe giving him a theological lecture is not the best. Um, when I was in seminary, one of the things that the that uh, our teachers talked about was the fact that you want to instill in people a sense of the sovereignty of God and a sense of God's care for them. But you want to do it before the pain and the suffering come because those things are supposed to fortify us when the pain and suffering come. And when you're in the middle of it, when it is the worst, is not the moment when you are really it, where it's healthy to go, huh, so I wonder, uh, is this pain that I'm feeling in my shoulder or in my leg being caused by God? Is God sovereign over that right now? And who, could he stop it right now? When you, when you do that, you're in the middle of the heat of it all. You're in the middle of the pain of it all. It can be very hard to think clearly. And so one of the things that they, they talked to us about, I think Charlie Winger talked to us when we were in class was he said, he said, teach these things, speak about these things, but when you're in the hospital with somebody, that is not the moment to say, hey, let's sort out the problem of pain. Let's sort out the problem of suffering. Instead, that's the moment when you do what his friends did at first, which was the right thing, which was they sat and they were quiet. You sit and you suffer with the person, you sympathize with them, you love them, and you certainly don't lecture them. 
um, which we'll learn in a moment. It's not the greatest idea. <clears throat> so Eliphaz leads off. So I'm just going to write these names. Uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. I just love their names. They have the best names. Uh, they're worthy of being memorized. So Eliphaz leads off. And Eliphaz, each of these guys have their own personality that comes through in the narrative. Eliphaz is a wise man. Um, he is very focused on justice. He, he's got his mind set on what's fair and what's not fair. He's very interested in making sure that the scales of God's justice are even. So that's kind of a, a focus in this guy's talk. And so Eliphaz brings two arguments to Job. The first thing he says is God is always good and just. He says, do not despise the, dis- dis- despise the discipline of the Almighty. That's what he says in Job 5, 17. So what is he doing? He's saying, Job, this is discipline. He's identifying what's happening to Job. And he's like, something's wrong in your life. And God is shaping you. He's using this suffering that you're going through for a good reason. And he's right in doing it. Um, so that's his first argument. God is always good and God is always just. You can see why it's hard to pick out what to disagree with and what these people say, right? How, who's going to argue with that? Who's going to argue with the goodness of God? Who's going to argue with the justice of God? Um, and then he says, makes the second argument. He says, man brings trouble on himself. Man brings trouble on himself. God is good. God is fair. The trouble we experience is our doing. And so he says in chapter four, he says, remember now who ever perished being innocent. It's not a bad argument. Who could argue with him saying that, right? You, you start to think through all the logic of what these guys are saying. And you can just imagine the torment Job is going through. My, my friends are not dummies. They're not, they're not silly people with just these bizarro thoughts. They actually have good points. So then, so then Bildad speaks. Uh, Bildad is aggressive. Um, he's, he's stuck up. He's very sure of himself. Um, he's very bound by tradition. That's sort of the personality of this guy. A diff- different fellow than Eliphaz. He's got a different approach. You ever do that as a group? You sort of hear somebody approach the same problem. You actually agree with what they say, but you disagree with how they said it. So you go, well, I'm going to chime in and say it my way. Well, Bildad comes in and says this his way. And he points at Job's suffering and he says, this is the way the paths are of everyone who forgets God. So, so he seems to think that Job has forgotten God in some area of his life. Something, somewhere in his life, he went off the rails and he lost a sense of God. That's what he says in Job 8.13. So are the paths of all who forget God. Um, he, he makes this argument. Bildad says, look to the past. He says, look to history. He says, it's always the sinful who are punished. Innocent people don't, don't get punished. God couldn't do that to somebody. He can only punish guilty people. He says, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert what is right? So one thing these guys both have in common is this strong sense of the justice of God. Again, really hard to argue with anything they've said up to this point. Really hard to argue with it. Um, The logic checks out. Uh, Then you have Zophar. And Zophar is a moral man. He is a purist. He is legalistic. He would actually make a great lawyer. 
Um, he's got no patience with this whole situation, and he's actually frustrated with Job. So if you think that Bildad is aggressive, you can just read Zophar, and you're like, man, this guy is rough. What a rough friend to have in your life, Zophar is. So he calls Job a hypocrite. Um, he says, you have said I am innocent. Chapter 11, verse 7. He's bringing an accusation against Job when he says that. Um, And then he says, God judges sin correctly when he sees it. He says, for he knows false men and he sees evil without investigation. Again, he's not saying it, but he's saying it. Job, you're one of these false men. You're one of these people that God sees right through you. Don't you see? And so his conclusion is Job must have sinned. He must have sinned. It is a necessary deduction from the situation Job finds himself in that he has done something wrong that he is experiencing so much suffering because only wicked people suffer like this. Again, that's the argument. Well, then you have Elihu. He comes in at the very end. So these guys go back and forth with Job. Each of these guys sort of expounding their own take on all of this situation. And then finally you have Elihu come in. Come in. And Elihu comes in in chapter 32. After these guys have gone back and forth, back and forth, Job makes his speech. And Elihu gets up and talks. And this guy is a young, he's a young, he's the youngest friend of Job. He is an admirer, though. He's somebody who admires Job. He likes Job. He appreciates him. And he kind of wants to defend Job. He really sees himself as, look, man, these guys, it's, it's three against one. This is not fair. Someone needs to come to Job's defense. But he has kind of a big mouth. And so eventually he comes to Job's defense late in the conversation and he is angry with these other guys. He is mad at them. He says, you guys are all wrong. And actually, as you're listening to Elihu, you're very tempted to go, yeah, finally, someone's bringing the heat. And Elihu says suffering, is, it says suffering in general is God's way to teach. It's God's way to discipline. And it's, it's God's way to build up righteous men. And so his point is actually, you guys are wrong about Job being bad. You guys have all sort of diagnosed the situation and said, Job's a villain. Job's got something wrong with his heart. And Elihu says, no, Job's actually a good man. And God is using this experience to shape him. First of all, I like this guy. Um, Elihu is easier to like than these other guys. You get that sense that, yeah, yeah, someone needs to defend Job. Um, all three of these guys have sort of, but, they, but they're also right about God's justice. And that's what makes it so painful to listen to the whole dialogue. You almost find yourself getting frustrated. Um, God, suffering brings maturity, Elihu says. God is using this to do something. He's doing something in you, Job. He's shaping you. And it gets to the point now where you go, but I like what everybody is saying. I, I kind of like everybody's point. And you, you, this is where the end of the book becomes such a relief because in, in a sense, if you ever had a conversation that got so bad that you just think, where is the conversation supposed to go from here? You wish someone would just stand up and bring the heat and just bring it all to kind of a close. And that's exactly what happens. That's exactly what happens beginning in verse in chapter 38. So 38, it says, then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. I like how he doesn't answer these other guys. He speaks to Job. Job has heard enough of human ideas and human thoughts and human philosophy. I mean, they're really just sitting around a bunch of amateur philosophers just saying, hey, let's all figure out the universe together with, without revelation, with the unaided reason. Let's just try to think this through and figure out the problem of pain. And everybody's made these 
reasonable points and it got them nowhere. So what happens? Uh, Job has been asking the question, why? I want you to notice this before we get to what God says. Job does not presume an answer, but he does presume that God has one. So Job understands God is personal. He understands that God has his reasons. He understands that the universe is not random. It's not full of just chance. Uh, He knows that much, but he doesn't understand it. And so God answers these men. He answers Job from the whirlwind. It's what the text says. And he, he answers with this. He answers with this indignance. You just hear the indignance. I'm just going to re- just start off and read just a little bit of it. Promise I won't read all the highlighted parts. Um, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Like you people just keep talking and you don't know what you're talking about. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you. And you shall answer me. Um, so when I, when I had my presbytery exam for the very first time in Mississippi Valley, it was terrifying. I, I stood in front of all these people and you don't know what someone's going to ask you. Someone might ask you something crazy that you've never even thought of before. And everybody in the room is going to think you're stupid because you never thought about that thing. Or, you know, you just don't know. You're going to get some random question like, uh, you, know, um, you know, is Rehoboam and Jeroboam brothers? And then you say yes because you're dumb. You know, like you're afraid. You don't know what's going to happen. Imagine having God say to you, I'm going to question you now. Like... That just makes every presbytery exam pale in comparison. And then if you're poor Job and you hear what comes for the next five chapters, you're just like, where can I go to die now? Like, I'm not, this is not going to be a good situation. Why, why am I here right now? And so God gives this indignance. He says, who do you think you are to question my wisdom? He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Answer, I didn't exist. You know, have you ever in your life commanded the morning or caused a dawn? <laughs> no, no, I haven't. He's, he says, where is the way to the dwelling of light? Has the rain a father? Um, in essence, what God is saying is, I am your master. I am your God. I decide all and I guide all. I am sovereign. I am in control of everything. Even that goat giving birth on a hill that nobody else sees. And I am at work all the time, working, 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 and I never stop. And so, and so um, then you have this, this statement in chapter 41, verses 10 to 11. He says, who then is he that can stand before me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under heaven is mine. It's an interesting discussion because the way that God responds to him What is the one thing missing from God's response? An answer to the question. Job doesn't hear the very thing that we hear in the first two chapters. Job doesn't get his answers. Job doesn't find out. All all that really happens is he shuts his mouth. God lays into him with the most, I think you could say, terrifying response to your, your dumb ideas that you could ever have. To have God just sort of lean on you as hard as he can. I mean, this is really the hardest you see God lean on anybody, I think, in scripture. 
Um, Here's how Calvin puts it. He says, Job has a good case, but argues it poorly. His friends have a bad case, but they argue it well. Job has a good case, but he argues it poorly. His friends have a bad case, but they argue it well. That's, I think that's an okay way of, of summarizing what happens here. Now, can we hit the themes of Job in the next seven minutes? We'll find out. Um, one of the themes of, of Job is the retribution principle. Uh, Job overturns this as an explanation for all success and all suffering. The retribution principle is it's not valid, right? All wealthy people are not wealthy and comfortable because they were good people. You could just think of examples of how that's not true. And then at the same time, all sufferers do not suffer because they have been evil. Think of, you can think of people uh, who, as far as you, can, you know, there's no great wickedness in their life. They haven't done something that seems to, to merit the worst suffering that they're going through. And yet they do. You've known good people who've, who've, be, who've become sick or who've become ill. Um, now, was the person a sinner? Yes. The person, we're all sinners. And yet you couldn't point at some great evil in their life that makes them a villain in the eyes of God. Um, this is actually, by the way, the same message as the book of Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk is saying the same thing, basically. Um, Suffering comes, and it is not necessarily an indication of your badness. And comforting good things happen to some people who really, in in, in most people's eyes, don't deserve it. Um, Another theme of this book is the importance of community, right? The, The idea here is that we need not suffer in silence. We can talk to God. We can complain. We can argue. We can let our hearts be known. Um... Here's the the truth. God already knows what you're thinking. Even when you think resentful thoughts of God, you should say them to him and then you should confess that you know they're wrong. But just be honest with the Lord. Be honest with him about how you feel and who you are. Um, Also, when I'm talking about community, he needed these friends, right? We are meant to have friends who suffer with us. We need to have people who are involved with us in our suffering. We do not go through these things by ourselves. We're not meant to. And Job would have been much happier if his friends had just been with him and been content to sit with him in silence. It was really Job's greatest need was friends, just be quiet. (laughs) We're all miserable here. Please don't say anything to me. Just be with me. Um, Another theme of this book is Satan. Satan is a real, so you, you read Job and you can derive several things about Satan from the book. One is that Job is a real, personal, created being who is under the sovereignty of God. Luther made this statement. He said he may be the devil, but he is God's devil. Uh, I always like Luther. and I end up repeating that all the time. But uh, he may be the devil, but he is God's devil. And so what is Satan's goal? Satan's goal is to encourage disobedience and destroy relationship between God and people. That's, that's what he's doing here in this book. He wants to strain that relationship between God and Job, and he wants to see if it snaps. Yeah, Larry. What is he doing in the presence of God? Great question. <laughs> Do you want God to come down in a whirlwind and answer your question? <laughs> <laughs> I love, I just, that's how I'm going to get out of all your questions this morning, by the way. <laughs> oh, this afternoon, it's after 12. Um. But yeah, we need, to, we need to recognize that Satan is a real personal being. He appears, he speaks, he is a singular being. 
not just a bunch of entities, but he is a singular personal being. Um, That doesn't mean that we can derive everything that we need to know about Satan from this book, but it gets us on the way at least. Um, I want you to hugely see the message of the book of Job as communicating the sovereignty of God. After Satan destroys, destroys Job's children and his property, Job gives this response. And listen very carefully. Parse it down if you have to. Listen to this. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord what? The Lord has taken away. But wait, we already identified who it is that brought the storm that killed his children. And we already know who brought the sores. Who was that? That was Satan. Yet Job says, God did this. The passage says Satan did these things, but Job goes one step higher and he recognizes all of this happens under the sovereign guidance and control of Almighty God. And then you might think, well, Job's just mistaken. This is another piece of dialogue where Job is talking and he doesn't know what he's saying. But then Job 1.22 says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Okay, so we're able to say God did this. We're able to say Satan did this. And we're able to say God did this. That's the way the sovereignty of God works. There are agents, there are intermediaries. They do what they do, they do what they want, and yet all under the sovereignty and guidance of God. Um, It's kind of like the author is quoting Luther and saying, yes, he's the devil, but he's God's devil. Um, God is sovereign even over suffering and death. That really is one of the messages that the book of Job is really communicating to us plainly and intentionally. Um, Another issue of this book is the problem of suffering. The word we use for this sometimes is called theodicy. Um, The theodicy is the question of how does suffering and evil happen, and yet God is not the author or creator of evil. Here's the reality. This, This question, this problem is unanswered in Job. Job does not sort that out. The answer to that question resides in God, and God doesn't unveil it even in five chapters of speech at the end of the book. Um. Before God's speech, the issue of, discuss, of discussion was God's justice, right? Everyone believed that God, what God uh, had done must have been justly deserved. After God's speech, the subject changes and it becomes about God's wisdom. Do you see how the, how the discussion moves? He doesn't make it about justice. He makes it about wisdom. God says, I'm wise. I know what I'm doing. I'm in control of all things. The argument stops being about whether it was fair or not. Um. God had a word for Job and his friends. He says, you ask the wrong questions and you assume the wrong things. You can't even begin to understand how I govern this universe or why I do what I do. This is so far above you. I can't even start to give you the right answer so that you could possibly begin to process it. Um, He says, this is about me. It's not about you. God says, actually, this universe is about God. This universe is not about Job. Um, He says, you ask the wrong questions. What I do is always wise. I was here before you. I will still be here after you. I'm here right now. And so the book of Job encourages us to rest in God's wisdom rather than in our own moral superiority or in our own sense of, in our own sense of fairness. Um, God never tells Job what transpired in the heavenly council. He doesn't say to him, hey, uh, just so you know, Job chapter 1 and 2, you should read them later. Um, he doesn't do it. 
And one of the takeaways that I have for this personally is, is this, we may go all our lives wondering what God's purpose was, wondering why something happened the way it did. And his answer is that we have to trust his wisdom and we have to trust his goodness even when we do not know what happened or why it happened or even what the good was. You know, sometimes we see the silver lining. I have things in my life that I don't know what the silver lining was and it's been 15, 20 years. And, and, I, and you, you probably do in your life as well. Some of those things you see the silver lining, it's gracious when you see it, but God doesn't give Job the silver lining. He doesn't tell him. Finally, I want to mention one more thing, even though it is going to add an extra probably three minutes, but it's important. Confidence in a redeemer. If you, if you turn, if you're looking for one verse that, I, that would be great to memorize from this whole book, it's actually Job 19.25. Because in the midst of Job's suffering, he says something really important, and I want to end on this. He says, for I know that my redeemer lives... And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. So remember, this is a book that takes place before the time of Moses. So this is a very ancient book. But even back then, it seems that Job looks forward to a day when a redeemer would be sent who would physically stand on the earth. And because of this redeemer, he would be able to know God face to face. Please don't miss that. In the middle of all of this, he does it from a position of faith. He questions God from a position of faith, not from a position of skepticism. And so in the midst of our suffering, here's what my prayer is for us. My prayer is that we would be able to say with Job, I may not know why, I may not understand, but I do know who to believe. Um, there's a movie that I love and everybody else seemed to hate. They walked out of the theater when I went to watch it. People just hated this movie so much. It's The Tree of Life. Did anybody watch The Tree of Life? I love The Tree of Life. I'm a huge fan of The Tree of Life, but it's a weird movie. But at one point in the movie, Brad Pitt has this line. He has this line. He says, someday we'll fall down and weep and we'll understand it all, all things. But we are not there yet. And while Job doesn't tell us the all things... This book does tell us who to let the all things rest with. He says, let them rest with God himself. It's a very God-centered conclusion to the the book of Job. Job is a very God-centered book. God is very God-centered. And he comes out with this speech that reminds you how God-centered he is. And so God's answer to Job is, this isn't about you at all. This is about me. Um, Let's pray. We're running a little behind, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that... We thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you are good. We thank you that, we are, that you are wise. And we ask that you would help us to trust you even when we do not have the answers and even when you are not forthcoming with them. Would you help us, Lord, to let these things reside with you? Help us not to be fearful. Help us not to be anxious. Help us to let all of these things, O oh God, be yours because the universe is yours and everything in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.